0: Hello everybody. It is the end of my work week. So that means it's time for you to join me on the homeward path. This is the show that I record in my vehicle on the way home from work at the end of the work week. And my name is Adam. I'm a husband, father of three, work a full-time job. And listen, magic's tough. It takes a lot of time and a lot of money. And if you're like me and don't have a lot of either one of those things because other responsibilities come first, then you should probably stay tuned because I'm here to try to show you how I am seeking improvement at Magic under difficult time and financial constraints. But before we get started, I need to remind you that I'm a part of the Constructive Criticism Network of Shows. If you haven't checked out the other content on the network, it is fantastic and you are doing yourself a disservice by not doing so. Uh, We bid a hopefully temporary farewell to the Arena Mythic cast, but Spencer returns, makes a glorious return to the flagship Constructed Criticism show. Uh, We've got Common Knowledge with Brad and Christian, and we've got... Sam Black, one of the icons one of the legends of Magic the Gathering with his insights unlimited so we've got something for everybody out of the group I'm probably the most casual and I'm kind of trying to lay into that, embrace that, lean into it a little bit more but check out the network and don't forget to check out our sponsors which I'll read off at the beginning of each segment well, we're back, and I hope everyone's had a good week. I know we did. It was a nice weekend out, but we're back. It is currently Sunday afternoon, so we're doing this on the shortest possible turnaround. With that said, let's dive in. First segment, every episode, Budget Spotlight. And this week for Budget Spotlight, we're doing things a little bit differently because I just could not think of a mythic I wanted to highlight yet. So we're doing an uncommon and three rares that I feel are undervalued, either in terms of their financial implication or more pressingly, I feel like they've got more gameplay matter, more gameplay viability than their price tags would suggest. This segment is brought to you by our sponsorship through MTGO Traders and Pure MTGO respectively. Uh, Pure MTGO is the official sponsor of the entire network and MTGO Traders is their sponsor, so they kind of make it all possible. If you're looking for Magic content on the web, they've got something for everybody. Go check it out. Do yourself that favor. And if you're looking for cards for Magic Online, use MTGO Traders. It's not a rental service. You just get to keep the cards. so It's kind of a win-win for you. The cards are cheaper, and you get to keep them. You can flip them for tickets down the line if the deck doesn't work out instead of having to give the cards back. So with that out of the way, let's dive in. Two are uncommon, and our uncommon this week is a card several of us have seen entirely too much of thanks to the standard 2022 format from the summer, and that is Skullport Merchant. Skullport Merchant is two in a black for a one for, I believe it's human rogue or human, Not probably not human rogue. I can't even remember what. A human peasant, something like that. Maybe a pirate. I I genuinely do not remember the rest of the creature type beyond human. But you're a three mana, one four. When it enters the battlefield, create a treasure token, and then one in a black, sacrifice another artifact or creature. Correction. Sacrifice another creature or a treasure. Draw a card. So a one four is... It was then and continues to be now a relevant size and standard and getting you from 3 to 5 mana is a really big deal. So you can cast this on turn 3, make a treasure, hit your land drop for turn 4 and have access to 5 mana at your disposal. That's not nothing. Very important to remember that. But the other ability adds a level of grind capability that ensures that your treasure cards that you're playing in your deck maintain a level of usefulness late. First of all, anytime you can turn creatures that are about to die into cards, it's a big deal. You are shutting off opposing removal. We've talked about this before. But it's also the ability to, you know, if you top deck this to wide open board, nothing else going on, it reads five mana one four when this creature enters the battlefield, draw a card. Like it, it just it's a it's a creature on the table, and it draws a fresh card. And if you draw a prosperous innkeeper, or if you draw a colane, that represents another card. You know, every single one of these creatures, these kind of mopey, unassuming creatures, can snowball into this engine where you're just digging through your deck trying to find the haymaker you need to win the game or to stabilize. So all the way around, not a bad deal, especially for the price. The paper price, courtesy of Cool Stuff, Inc., is $0.25 cents a copy. And the Magic Online price, courtesy of MTGO Traders, is a penny. 0.01 tickets. So, you know, if you haven't picked these up, I don't know what you're doing kind of a big deal it's it's not the kind of card that's going to be dominant in a format but it is the kind of card that's always going to have a niche and for that reason i think it's a really good value moving on to our first rare of the week we're talking treasure map now treasure map is kind of a near and dear thing for me but it's a two mana artifact a modal double face card The front half is a two-mana artifact. It's not modal double-face. It's just a classic double-face. You meet the conditioning, you transform it. I should specify that. For one and tap, you can scry one and then put a landmark counter on treasure map. Then if you have three or more landmark counters on it, create three treasures and transform it. And On the other side, it, it goes from treasure map to treasure cove, and treasure cove can either tap for a colorless mana, or can tap, sacrifice a treasure, and draw a card. There have been plenty of bad mid-range decks that were made better while this card was in standard. Not that long ago. I have vivid memories playing against piles of cards playing uh, Karn, Sion of Urza, and this. As their card draw package, and they're otherwise incapable of accessing card draw decks, and it was just wonderful for exactly that role. You know, it's it's generic card draw, if nothing else. But it also still has utility for a um, as, uh, duh, 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 still has utility as an enabler for a litany of synergies, especially with more treasure cards being printed after it. You know, not the least of which is anything that allows you to untap it, allows you to keep eating treasures to draw cards. Uh, you've got the synergy with cards that care about what's on top of your library, be it Delver of Secrets, be it whatever. You know, scrying in your upkeep in response to your Delver triggers kind of cool. Scrying in your upkeep in response to other triggers, you know, clash, kinship, whatever. What uh, All the triggers that are out there, right, that care about the top card of your library, being able to scry for one mana is kind of a big deal. And then once flipped, again, it makes three treasures and then gives you a way to turn them into actual cards. It's kind of a big deal. Think Maze Mind Tome, but with less mana effort involved. Because, you know, Maze Mind Tome, we talked about being the best white card draw available. This was better. Because this would turn from a two mana investment, and then Tome you had to activate four times in order for it to go away. So you get four activations before you would get to before you would gain life and stop getting the benefit. So like on its face, Tome draws more cards, but this fixes you early and draws you cards late, whereas Tome made you choose between the two. Between the two, I kind of dig treasure map a lot. Uh, And price-wise, at Cool Stuff Inc., for paper, it's $7 a copy, which is obviously not stellar. But considering how cheap everything else is on this list, I thought we could get away with one that's a little bit on the high side. And it's sort of evergreen when it comes to formats like Pioneer and Commander. And then on Magic Online, it is 0.2 or 0.02 tickets. It's two cents. Two pennies. We can do worse than two pennies for that effect on Magic Online. Our second rare, so this would normally be the Mythic slot, is Florian, Voldaren, Scion. Now, Florian is a little bit of kind of a, a, an add-in here because it obviously doesn't have the same kind of direct synergy with treasures that the rest of the cards we're going to talk about, do. But Florian's an interesting case study in ways to branch out of the wizards told me to build around it this way, kind of mantra. Florian is one a black and a red, legendary creature, vampire, probably sham. I can't remember, let's look. Because for once we're sitting at home, so. Vampire Noble, maybe? Vampire Noble. One, a black and a red. Legendary creature, Vampire Noble. 3 three first first strike at the beginning of your post-combat main phase. Look at the top X cards of your library where X is the total amount of life your opponents lost this turn. Exile one of those cards and put the rest on the bottom in a random order. You may play the exiled card this turn. So, it's a decent example of a small ball payoff for a stray treasure token. Because... You chip in, and then you get to look at the top card of your deck and decide if you want to play it this turn. And if it's a one-drop spell, well, if you've got an extra treasure laying around, you can play it. But the more treasures you have, the stronger this ability gets because you have more mana laying around. Even disregarding that, it provides a much-needed punch of card advantage to black-red aggressive decks. Which, admittedly, we haven't seen too many of in the current standard format, but it honestly kind of makes me think the format might be a little bit susceptible. If we can find an aggressively oriented black-red deck in the format, Florian might be enough to make it good. And while this is not a mythic, this is a card that could have a major impact going forward. Both, one, the price tag is really low, and two, it's potentially going to be in a format where one of its most natural predators may not be there for much longer, that being Allred's Epiphany that may or may not get banned. Uh, it's it's the kind of card that rewards you for getting on the ground and getting in there. And it just, it feels like the kind of card that is waiting for just a little bit more support. And we've got Innistrad Crimson Vale on the way, Kamigo and Neon Dynasty in February, like, this thing could go from zero to hero really quick. And that is not, that, that, is an, that is a reasonable place to look, especially at the price tag of $1 in paper and two cents on MTGO. And last but not least, for our Commander Slanted card, we have Merry Master. Marionette Master is four black, black. Let's double check creature types because I can't remember things. Uh, anyway, uh, six mana buys you a one, three, I believe it is. Let's get it pulled up, if this thing will ever listen to me. Marionette Master. Six mana buys you a 1-3 Human Artificer with Fabricate 3. When this creature enters the battlefield, put your choice of either 3 plus 1 plus 1 counters on it, or create 3 servos. And then whenever an artifact you control is put into a graveyard from the battlefield, target opponent loses life equal to Marionette Master's power. You want a way to punish people for bad decisions with smothering tithe for letting you get all the treasures? Just jam this thing. Like, jam this thing with a stack of 15 treasures and watch your opponent's faces just go, oh. 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 <laughs> it even goes as far as being the uh, the centerpiece of a story, one of, the, one of the really good stories from my old LGS, Gooses Computers and Games, in which we had a mirror between two blue-black control players that were playing this card as a win condition in their blue-black control decks because we were we were brewers. What can we say? Marinette Master has with the with the plus ability has a lot of synergy with treasures because treasures can sacrifice freely. So they were playing Treasure Map and then they were playing Spell Swindle and other. Uh, like blue and black cards that just left a stray treasure behind here and there. And it led to one of the funniest sequences I've ever seen where one player jammed Marionette Master, and then we saw three copies of Spell Swindle before a Disallow finally resolved the stack. So it was marionette master, spell swindle, your marionette master, spell swindle, your spell swindle, spell swindle, your spell swindle, that's trying to counter my spell swindle. And then obviously with four, with three plus one plus one counters a marionette master, if you get five treasures from spell swindle, you will in turn have enough treasures to kill your opponent from 20 life. That was the sort of combo, and I use air quotes there, that they were trying to go for, but it was a really cool story. One of the the wildest stack resolutions I've ever seen, and just a really cool moment in LGS history, if you will. But seriously, whether it's treasures or just any other artifact, sacrificing loops, think Time Sieve from last week's episode, You know, if you've got a Marionette Master on the battlefield and you're executing this one of the time sieve loops, your opponent's dying at the same time. It just closes out games. You know, nine times out of ten, your default mode is going to be six mana, four, six. Every time I sack an artifact, somebody loses four life. That's what this is mostly for but some amount of the time it's just going to come down and you know make tokens and try to survive. Both these things are valid ways to play Magic. And the price tag on it is 50 cents in paper and a penny on Magic Online. So as win conditions in Commander go, can do a whole lot worse. So with that out of the way, that's going to wrap up Budget Spotlight. And transition us to our second segment, Brew of the Week, where we are highlighting a deck that, in this case, is kind of the reason we're talking about what we're talking about this week. But it's a deck that I feel like either has some merit going forward, doesn't get played as much as I think it should, or just is really subjectively cool. I mean, there's no hard point analysis that I'm looking for here. It's just whether or not it gets my attention uh this week's deck is jund treasures and it's an important part to mention that this segment is brought to you by our affiliate program with gray viking games uh that affiliate link is down in the description if you're watching this on youtube listening on Constructed criticism or pure mtgo and if you're not listening on any of those parts join our conversation in the facebook Facebook group Homeward Pathfinders and it's going to be in the pen messages there. So Jund Treasures core concept plan A is to accelerate into some of the standard strongest threats to turn early. You've got access to Goldspan Dragon. You've got access to Eskis Chariot. You've got access to Renin Seven and I know y'all are tired of hearing me talk about those three cards but they're really 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 good. Like, they're really good. But plan B is to grind using spot removal and a surprisingly robust draw engine if you're playing a bunch of treasures in your deck. From a customization standpoint, how consistently do you want to slam a gold span, a chariot, or a renin seven-to-turn early? Between Prosperous Innkeeper... Callane, uh Skullport Merchant. You know, there's a number of ways to get that one mana ahead, to get that first good threat down. So if you really want to go down that rabbit hole, you can you can go all the way down it with cards like Magga or Magda and Jasper Sentinel. And just be all the way in on casting 4 and 5 drops early at the expense of being able to interact. On the flip side, you can play a little bit more of an interactive deck and still be able to jam Innkeeper, who is a reasonable magic card, on turn 2. Innkeeper on 2, Chariot on 3, Binding on 4, Goldspan on 5 is still a reasonable curve. So... How deep into the treasure engine do you want to go? Do you play Kalain? Do you play cards like uh, Seize the Spoils or Unexpected Windfall? Do you play additional ways to use your treasures or make more? How much learning do we want to do? And if you do want to do a bunch of learning, what's your lesson plan look like? Mine is generally pretty streamlined and I don't do a ton of it in decks like this, especially... It's usually in the form of like one, to, uh, two copies of Field Trip and like probably two copies of uh, Hunt for Specimens as just kind of a hedge for when I don't draw Mana Acceleration, and that may just be a classic case of me trying too hard. But I just really like the cards, so knowing what you're what. Your, how much learning you want to do, how much you know, what your lesson plan is—that's also really important. From a strengths and weaknesses standpoint, you've got a relatively high power ceiling and a capable grind game between Goldspan Dragon, Ren Seven, Chariot, Planeswalkers. I mean, you've got a lot to choose from. That can just—you're just a pile of cards that each one of them can take over the game. And you've got the draw engine and the grind capability of stuff like Orcus or uh Skullport or you know, these other really kind of incremental grindy cards that you are playing alongside these single like snowballing engine cards in your deck. But being able to play all those cards doesn't mean you're going to consistently play all those cards thanks to the, uh, the biggest weakness, which is mana. We don't have, we don't have things like Triomes or Shocklands or Fable Passage in the format anymore. So we kind of have to improvise pretty heavily and lean really hard on the treasures to fix our mana. And depending on whether or not you get a gold span down and get going... You may not be able to. So your treasures will be stressed rather frequently the further down the just-play-good-cards route you go. And, of course, the fewer really good cards you play, the harder it is to just hit those high-impact top decks and dominate the game. So it's a really delicate balancing act to get it right. And I'm not going to pretend that I have. From an outlook perspective, when you play a pile of good magic cards, you get a great feeling of being able to come back from nearly any given situation. You know, you boards relatively stable, you're kind of sitting there looking at each other and you just top deck a gold span and go at it. That feels pretty strong. You top deck a Renin 7 with a chariot on the board, but your opponents killed all your other creatures. That feels really strong. You top deck Skullport Merchant in the middle of the game and you're, you're not super excited, but at least you know, you know, I'm getting at least one more card out of this. And if my opponent trades a removal spell for it, even better. Because then it's a two for one. The most important facet of this deck is balancing its mana. Because it's really important to have a clear vision in determining what your color balance. It's really a deck that is either green-red, splashing-black for... Uh, Skullport, Deadly Dispute, and Binding, or it's Green-Black, Splashing, Goldspan, and nothing else in red. At least in my experience. It's got to be one of those two models. If you're base black, you really want to lean toward the one where you only need red mana for gold span. If you're base green, you can kind of cheat a little bit more and get away with being more green red and having the black be your light splash. But it's really important to have a clear picture of like what you want your curve to look like, you know, how you interact with the format how you're going to sideboard all those things that we've talked about on this show several times over. It's really important with a deck like this that is very much a right 75, right weekend kind of deck. So that's going to wrap up Brew of the Week. Let's move on to the main topic, which I dubbed Treasury Department because sometimes I lack imagination. Uh, main segment is made possible by contributions from Patreon. Patreon.com slash mtG is where you can get involved in that. This show is always going to be free, but if you like what we're doing enough to help us keep doing it, head over there, become a patron, take advantage of your rewards. So, treasures have gradually become a big part of magic. Just kind of out of nowhere, it feels like. They officially became a thing in Ixalan with a few similar but not the same name tokens appearing throughout the years before. You know, we have the gold tokens that did the same thing. We had the uh, Ethereum cells from uh, Tezzeret, whichever one it was that was in uh, Ether Revolt, the 4-drop one. Whatever the case may be, there's a, there's a precedent for these non-creature artifact tokens that tap and sacrifice to make mana. They provided you a temporary boost in mana and fixing. And since their initial introduction, they've expanded to serve a number of roles in deck building. We've seen a lot of cards printed for them. Some of them just kind of offhandedly in other sets, but most recently in Strixhaven and Uh, Adventures in the Forgotten Realms, we got a whole bunch of treasure cards just kind of all at once, and I'm here for it. But it's important to kind of unpack why these cards are good, what they bring to the table, and what they do with the mechanic they've helped create, because I think it's a really cool mechanic. So for starters, roll number one is the most obvious one, Mana Fixing and Ramp obviously a non-token permanent you can stockpile which taps for mana as a one-shot reward gives you a great way to access off-color fixing and bigger spells early you kind of hurdle yourself toward the fundamental turn and or clean up some patches where you're having to fit in a tap land or you miss a land drop you know if one thing, one thing treasures do that I love a lot is reduces a lot of the mana variants available in the game. Where you can make difficult decisions about whether or not you want to cast your spells on, tar, on time based on how many treasures you have. Do you want to cast something early and not be able to cast your next spell on time? Or do you want to cast something that's regularly on curve in order to hit something potentially more powerful down the line early? In conjunction with a little bit of synergy, these cards can become powerful Sorry, in conjunction with some synergy cards, you can become really powerful with a few spare treasures laying around. Think Urza, think uh, Galazeth Prismari, which allows you to tap treasures for mana without sacrificing them, as long as you're spending them on instants and sorceries. You can think Goldspan Dragon, that allows them to sacrifice for two mana instead of one, giving you access to both more and more powerful spells early. And as outlined in a recent episode, they also help enable off-color splatches, splashes, which allows treasure decks to access a wide swath of powerful answers to the field. Think off-color lessons. Think splashing. Test of talents after sideboard against Epiphany decks. You know, it—it's relatively unexplored territory, which is kind of a funny thing considering Ixalan had. Explore and unclaimed territory both in the set. Tangents. Roll number two is kind of the most recent one, but we've talked about kind of the two main cards that give you major benefits for it, but it goes deeper than that. Uh, Card advantage would be roll number two. Cards like Treasure Map and Skullport Merchant allow you to directly convert treasures to cards at a clearly defined rate. Skullport Merchant trades two mana and one treasure for a card. While a flipped treasure map transforms just a treasure directly for a card once a turn. But there's more to it than that. Cards like Deadly Dispute, Costly Plunder, things that allow you to sacrifice permanents to draw cards. A really good example going way, way back. Perilous Research. Two mana. Draw two cards, sacrifice permanent. That's pretty good alongside Treasure Tokens. It was really good alongside hatching plans, which is why we played it initially. Because you could sacrifice if if uh, hatching plans went to the graveyard, you would draw three cards. So an end step perilous research would sacrifice hatching plans and draw five. But in conjunction with treasures, it allows you to have more of a fail state, if you will. Uh, Deadly dispute, costly plunder are direct synergy pieces deadly dispute lets you trade two mana and a treasure for two cards and another treasure so you're functionally just trading two mana and deadly dispute for two more cards because you break even on treasures which is kind of a big deal uh costly plunder is just two mana sacrifice an artifact or creature draw two cards But all of that, the fact that these cards are relatively non-discriminatory in what you use to power them, makes them that much more powerful in conjunction with a little bit of synergy, which is where roll number three comes in. You have obvious build-arounds in the mana from a treasure payoffs from Adventures of the Forgotten Realms. Devour Intellect comes to mind. It goes from being a really, really bad discard spell to a painless Thought Seize. The uh, two-drop grizzly bear that draws a card and you lose a life when it enters the battlefield. If you spent mana from a treasure to cast it, it was really strong. Kalane makes your creatures more efficient by spending mana from treasures to cast them. All the way around, it's just a really compelling mechanic. But it goes deeper than that, because you also have cards that care when artifacts enter the battlefield, or cards that care how many artifacts you control, or cards that care about artifacts dying, tapping untapped artifacts you control. Treasures help you with all of those. You know, uh, unexpected windfall leaving behind two treasures means you can then tap those two treasures... Use Clock of Omens to untap something that makes a lot of mana, or you know, obviously Urza. uh, No, not Grand Architect. There's there's a there's a number of them. You can access off color mana for cards for mechanics like Sunburst or Converge. Your Engineered Explosives get better. Your Bring to Light can cast for five colors earlier with a treasure. You've got synergy with when you sacrifice a permanent. Think mayhem devil plus treasures is kind of gross because you sacrifice a bunch of treasures, float a bunch of mana, mayhem devil pings a bunch of stuff. I think you've still got mana floating so you can do stuff like trail of crumbs, sacrifice of food, ping another thing and draw a card. Or, you know, just get you the last few points of damage. Put a bunch of counters on your core Corvald to kill your opponent. Whatever. You've got tokens matter synergy, not just in the form of cards like uh, Parallel Lives, Anointed Procession, or Doubling Season that will double the number of treasure tokens you get, but in the form of cards like... Oh, what is that card's name? Woodland Champion, I think, I can't remember the card's name. It's one and a green, one, one, and whenever a token enters under your control, put a plus one, plus one counter on it. Treasures or tokens, they put a counter on it. And then can help defend it. And there's a lot more. I know there's more to it than that. And there's more that's on the way because this is a really sweet mechanic and I don't think it's something Wizards intended to just be pocketed into this format. I think this is one of the ways you help with mana fixing and mana ramp going forward without having to shuffle a ton is to really lean into Treasures. And that leads into our final notes. Treasures began life as a pretty simple mechanic but have a lot to offer and a lot more utility than their original design. They went from being, yeah, you can jump ahead from in mana for one shot. It's like a delayed ritual you pick when the ritual fires off. To this like all-encompassing engine where you get to do a whole bunch of cool stuff all at once. And I'd really, really like to see this theme continue to be expanded upon. Because I think it's just neat. It's just cool. You know, it's... It's similar in a lot of ways to some sim, some other mechanics from other games in which, I mean, you know, Hearthstone gives you the coin. You, you have cards that make the coin. And it's really similar to the coin, except any deck can use it, use the same spells. You know, Ragavan is a classic example of treasures providing a massive benefit to a card that Honestly, probably didn't need it. But it's a clear example of like tacking an extra treasure on being just that little bit extra. "Mm -hmm -hmm, This is really good. So the more we continue to see them expand and play around with this design space and creating and using treasures, the more I think the game is going to evolve in an interesting direction because they simultaneously lower and increase variance based on how you play them. And if I've ever been consistent about anything and what I love in Magic, it's making decisions. I want to be given the power to make decisions by the game mechanics at my disposal. I like modal spells. I like uh, double face cards. I like, you know, the, the dual lands. I just, I like that my decisions have a direct result in shaping the outcome of the games that I play in a very clear and tangible way. And to me, treasures are a classic example of that. So, I really hope we get more of this in the future. But that's all I got for this week, everybody. I'm sorry for the short episode, but, I mean, treasures don't stick around for long, right? But... If you've got any questions, you've got comments, you've got concerns, you can send them to me on Twitter at HomewardPathMTG. You can join the conversation in our Facebook group, the Homeward Pathfinders. If you want to become a patron of the show, don't forget, patreon.com slash HomewardPathMTG. And I will leave you as I do every episode. First of all, update on the Race to Mythic. I'm sitting in gold three. Kind of trading wins and losses. Trying to figure out what everybody's playing there. Seems like an awful lot of mono white. Just an unfortunate amount of mono white. So I'm. Pivoting I think to blue red epiphany. To try to fight my way through gold. I've been playing just more kind of brews. And cool decks. But I think I'm just going to play the good stuff. For a little bit. We're just going to play good cards. And hope for the best. But. Uh, Amaris has fallen rather deep head over heels into the Animal Crossing community and has decided to work more on the Mythic Challenge next month. So, My plan is to try to get as high as I can this month and then look for a better, just kind of gradually try to go up a little bit higher every month until we get there. Amaris, I guess, wants to make it all happen in one shot. We'll see which one of us gets there first, eh? But with that in mind, that's all I got for this episode. Again, questions, comments, concerns. Twitter, Homeward Path MTG, Facebook group, Homeward Pathfinders. If you want to become a patron, support the show in a direct fashion, Patreon.com/HomewardPathMTG. Don't forget to check out our sponsors. Don't forget to check out the rest of the network, ConstructiveCriticism.com. Everybody's doing good stuff right now. The noises you're hearing in the background are my children. So that's all I've got. So I will leave you as I do every episode with a few parting words. Everybody's going through stuff right now. Things are not great. We don't know what people have got going on. So with that in mind, I always urge people to lead with kindness when they're dealing with other people. Always try to be nice, but never fail to be kind. So laugh hard, treasure your memories playing magic with new people, and be kind. We'll catch you next episode.